Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday night. It's May 12th, 2023. And boy, oh boy, what a week this has been. I know I keep saying it, but this week um, has been particularly, well, let's say interesting with the end of Title 42. Um, what we are now witnessing because of the Biden administration policies is basically unregulated immigration into the United States from aliens from the four corners of our planet, period. They have effectively dismantled the borders of the United States. A country's borders are its first and last line of defense. That's not a statement of xenophobia. It's a statement of reality. You know, I often say that the two most dangerous words that we get from academia is in theory. In theory, you can construct any fanciful creation and say, see how that works? In theory, communism is fair. It's reasonable to each according to his needs, from each according to his, his or I guess her ability. Wow, does it get better than that? Well, talk to people who live under communist regimes. I don't think you're going to find too many happy campers if they have the guts to speak out against the tyrannical conditions under which they live. And that's the issue, if they have the guts. Americans have been intimidated and bullied, cowed, into shutting their mouths and not stating what they really believe. And I know I have a lot of friends that were very concerned about the Second Amendment, but I've always warned people that the Founding Fathers, in their brilliance, made the First Amendment the First Amendment for a very important reason. If you do not have the freedom to speak your mind, then you don't have freedom, period, full stop. Freedom of speech goes with freedom of thought. That was the whole point behind George Orwell's 1984. If you have not read 1984, please go and get it. It's easy. You can find it online. It's a quick but disturbing read. And if you read 1984, you will understand everything that is playing out in the United States right now. The American people have been intimidated, and for the most part, they've turned coward. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. And in Brooklyn, when I grew up, if things got to that point, we had fist fights in the schoolyard, and you learned how to stand your ground. Not with a firearm, but with your fists, if need be. It starts with your mouth, and then it progresses to your fists, and you hope it doesn't go there. But you learn to stand up, and as my father, may rest in peace, would have said, be a man. If you cannot deal with schoolyard bullies, you cannot deal with adulthood, and the thugs that you're going to meet in boardrooms or in other settings. If you look at how puppies and kittens and all sorts of animals play, what do they do? They play fight. They are in training for the rest of their lives. That play fighting that they engage in is a survival training session. I boxed as a kid. Lots of kids go to martial arts classes. It's about learning how to defend yourself. And if you've been paying attention for the past couple of decades, the emphasis has been on we've got to go after the bullies, We've got to protect the kids, and we do. I hate bullies. I used to get the crap beat out of me as a kid because I don't think athletes are heroes. They're performers. Um, I remember speaking to a former Special Forces um, operator, and we were talking about football and baseball, and he said, listen, this nonsense about football heroes, uh, the sports figures wear costumes, soldiers and law enforcement wear uniforms, okay? Think about it. So we started to condition our kids that winning doesn't matter. Coming in second place is as good as first place. That's basically communism, right? It's eliminating competition. We don't want you to feel badly. Um, My parents taught me that if you didn't like losing, 
make certain that you're fully prepared, whether it was playing handball or participating in a debate, whatever it is. If you don't want to lose, prepare better. It's all about preparation, and it's about toughness of mind and spirit. And over the past 20 years or so, American men, frankly, have been emasculated. Toxic masculinity, really? Toxic masculinity enabled America and its allies to defeat the Nazis during the Second World War. Toxic masculinity put U.S. astronauts on the moon over a half century ago. Toxic masculinity. And people have gone along with the nonsense very quietly. And as we went more quietly into the night, the lunatic left ramped up their efforts. We now have people confused as to what differentiates a man from a woman. Uh, If you really want to follow the science, uh, the the big call of the radical left, uh, look at the genes. Two X genes, you're a woman. An X and a Y, you're a man. A male and female is the same throughout the animal kingdom, okay? Lions, tigers, dogs, bears, monkeys, I don't care. Two X's is a male, an X is a female, and an X and a Y is a male. Very simple. There's nothing controversial. I personally don't care what anyone's sexual proclivities are as long as whatever they do, they do in private, and it doesn't involve children, and it doesn't involve people who are being coerced or drugged or or whatever. Live your life the way you want. I'm kind of libertarian on that. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. The Democrats have morphed into something very ugly, certainly not liberal. There's nothing liberal about people that want to take away your First Amendment rights. True liberals, true liberals celebrate the First Amendment. They don't try to destroy the First Amendment. I was taught that everyone is entitled to his or her opinions. We don't have to agree. We need to be respectful. The only time that there's a problem if you're going to go out there making statements is if you incite a riot or if you cry fire in a crowded theater or do the equivalent. But whatever your beliefs are, you're free to express them. It's amazing. Tucker Carlson left Fox News and an NBC correspondent was wringing his hands and saying, oh, my God, who's going to police Tucker Carlson's speech? This is America. We don't police each other's speech. This is very dangerous. It's been ongoing for quite some time, and it's always been about intimidation. People have come to me frequently because I was an immigration agent and because I've been a very outspoken advocate for fair but effective enforcement and administration of our immigration laws, and they've said to me, Mr. Cutler, aren't you afraid they're going to call you a xenophobe? The ubiquitous they, right? They're going to call you a xenophobe? I said, how am I a xenophobe? As an immigration agent, I arrested aliens from all over the world. It wasn't just from Latin America. I worked closely with the Israeli National Police. I got an award from the Japanese National Police. I worked with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounties. I worked with New Scotland Yard, arresting an individual in New York who was wanted for murder in England. I arrested an Israeli wanted for murder in Israel. Um, I was involved with a Japanese woman in getting her to go back to Japan to stand trial because she was part of a major gang that was smuggling cocaine from the United States into Japan. That's why I got the award from the Japanese government. This isn't about going after people of a particular ethnicity, race, or religion. If that's what I was expected to do as an immigration agent, I couldn't have done my job for 30 seconds, never mind the 30 years that I carried that badge. Our immigration laws are completely blind about race, religion, or ethnicity. It's all about protecting public health, public safety, national security, and the jobs and wages of Americans. And I'd love someone to stand up and tell me how it's unreasonable or unfair to protect national security, public safety, public health, and Americans' jobs and wages. Because that's what the immigration laws are about. I have an article that will be coming out within the next couple days at Front Page Magazine, and I even include a link to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, because that's the section of law that deals with the categories of aliens who are excludable from the United States, must not be let in. It's about aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases, suffer mental illness, or criminals, terrorists, spies, fugitives from justice, um, aliens, smugglers, human traffickers, drug smugglers, um, aliens who've been previously deported, aliens who've committed fraud and applications uh, to enter the United States or for immigration benefits, 
and then we get to aliens who would become a public charge, or if they worked, would uh, displace American workers and or drive down wages. What is unreasonable? Abraham Lincoln spoke of an America that had a government that was of the people, by the people, for the people. For me, the immigration laws are an excellent application of that fundamental principle, by the people, for the people, right? Think about it. And I was just watching a news conference with Mayorkas, and it's really difficult to watch him, I have to tell you. He's done such damage, and he did it also during the Obama administration. And some female reporter with a slight accent said to him, are you turning away people who are coming from countries in which there is rampant poverty? Is that humane? And I thought, my gosh, this brings us back to this notion about the academic world where you make these constructs and you say things like, in theory. It's kind of like the 19-year-old beauty queen who's asked about her platform with all that gravitas. What is your platform besides your platform shoes, I guess? I want to end world hunger. Well, how do you plan to do that? I have no clue, but we have to end world hunger. Maybe we should feed everybody. In theory, it sounds great. So let's look at where theory meets the real world in practice, in reality. In fact, I testified before a whole bunch of congressional hearings in the House and Senate. And what members of the Congress and councils on both sides of the aisle said to me, as lawyers, we can construct all kinds of laws. But what we need from you as an agent with so much experience is, number one, whether the laws that we write can be enforced, and what are the unintended consequences of the laws that we write? So they had the theory, and I had the reality check, if you will. And that's really important. The idea that it is unfair to turn away poor people sounds great, but when you look at the fact that there's well over 7 billion human beings inhabiting planet Earth, probably half of them live below what we would call the poverty line, can we bring a billion people to the United States and survive? You know, many years ago, shortly after the terror attacks of 9-11, and I've done tons of television, there was a small network in New Jersey. They invited me to come to the studio. It was a frigid winter night. I'll never forget it. The roads were covered in ice. It took me forever to get there. And while the major studios would normally send a town car for me, um, I was asked, would you mind driving in? And I was kind of reluctant. I hate driving in ice. Any other weather conditions I don't care about. Ice is a concern. I'm sure you share that concern. But I was willing to do it because I was determined, after having lived through 9-11 um, and after having done the things that I've done, to me this is all very personal. I wanted to share my perspectives based on my many years of experience on investigating and arresting terrorists, drug traffickers, and others who pose a threat to national security and public safety. So I, I drove in, and I was to debate a young lady, very articulate, very pleasant. She was a lawyer, and she thought I was the devil incarnate. Oh, my gosh, you want to keep people out of the country. And I don't even remember the debate, but I remember that all of her arguments were all about theory. In theory, we should be doing this. In theory, we should be doing that. And after the program was over, she had come by public transportation, and it was really tough outside. It was like five degrees. And the producer asked me, would you mind giving this young lady a lift? She lives in Manhattan. You're going to Brooklyn. It would be really a wonderful thing. We wish we could afford to provide you guys with cars, you know, with a ride. So I did. So we wound up having about two hours in the car because I was driving at about 10 miles an hour trying to avoid an accident. So we had plenty of time to talk. And she said to me, don't you feel bad? Aren't we a nation of immigrants? I said, we're absolutely a nation of immigrants. My mother came here ahead of the Holocaust. My grandmother, who couldn't get out of Poland, died in the Holocaust. I was named for my grandmother. My mother came here as a 13-year-old legally. Her father abandoned her, nice guy. So she wound up at the age of 13 living in a rooming house in a strange country where she couldn't speak the language, and she had to support herself at age 13 by working in a sweatshop making umbrellas for $3 a week. 
And by the time she was in her 20s, with only a fourth grade education, she had no time to go to school. She was trying to support herself, but she was inherently brilliant. Um, she became the chief buyer for a major dress company that during the Depression was so successful that her boss, the owner of the company, became one of Roosevelt's salary yearmen. And he frequently pointed to my mother, his chief buyer, as the reason he was able to be so successful. She was only in her 20s with a fourth grade education. Uh, I'm so proud of both of my parents, you know. They were rock-solid, decent, moral people who taught me, uh, number one, don't hide behind excuses. You can't, you know, deposit an excuse in the bank. An excuse won't feed you. An excuse won't pay the bills. If you do something wrong, own it, figure out what you did wrong, and realize that in life there's no mistakes, only lessons if we learn from what goes wrong. But my parents would be livid if I gave them excuses about just about anything. My father would say to me, not only are you BSing me, but that means you think I'm an idiot that I'm going to accept this nonsense. I mean, think about that. I had a solid upbringing. I was taught that you've got to be, as my mother would say, you know, independent, um, self-sufficient, take care of yourself. And that is the immigrant mindset. It certainly was for my mother and many of her friends who came over fleeing the violence of, of Poland, Germany, and so forth, as the war clouds from the Second World War were gathering. I'm not anti-immigrant, but we have limitations on how many people we can accept to begin with. If you look at classrooms, there's supposed to be a certain number of children per teacher. If you go into a restaurant, the fire department will hang a certificate on the wall telling people how many people can occupy that restaurant or that theater or that office based on square footage and access to exits and so forth. It's about safety. I'm sure you've seen it. You walk in or right there near the cash register will be a sign, by order of the fire commissioner, occupancy by more than 203 people is unlawful, whatever the number is. And it varies according to location. You get on an airplane, there's a limited number of seats. So this idea that you're somehow evil and unfair if you're going to impose a limit on immigration is insane and it denies the reality of limitations. What was the old Clint Eastwood line? A man's got to know his limitations. The country has to know its limitations. So as we had this delightful conversation driving on a skating rink roadway, I said to this young lady, do you think America can absorb 10 million immigrants? And by the way, we admit more than a million lawful immigrants every year under the current law. We admit tens of millions of temporary visitors. Temporary, they're supposed to go home when the time is up. Like you rent a hotel room and they slide the bill under your door the last night of your stay. So you wake up in the morning, there's the bill, you go to the front desk and you check out, right? It's a temporary visit. You don't own the room, you rented it for a period of time. As compared with people who come here and get green cards and they're on the path to citizenship, they're here permanently. In fact, the cards they're given used to be called permanent resident alien cards, and then the lawyers and the politicians said, oh, we can't use the word alien because it's a terrible word, so they call them perms. I read my mother used to get a perm. It was a permanent. You know, she, they, they curled her hair or did whatever they did with her hair. It was called a perm. Well, now the green cards are called perms because you can't use the word alien. Perm is short for permanent resident, Right. The reality is the term alien simply means any person who is not a citizen or national of the United States, period. Not my definition. That's actually the definition to be found in the Immigration and Nationality Act. Alien, any person not a citizen or national of the United States. There's no insult, but there is clarity. And we're being conned left, right, and center by both political parties because they are bought and paid for by the lobbyists. If you hate lobbyists, if you hate the special interest groups, they're employees of the politicians. This is an employer-employee relationship. When they take money from the special interest group, they become the de facto employee. Isn't that the employer-employee relationship? If you work at a restaurant and you're a cook and the owner of the restaurant says, this is how much meat you put in the hamburger, you have to follow. If you, if you work at any business, your boss will tell you what's expected. You either do it or get fired. That's the employer-employer relationship. You have to satisfy the employer. The employer writes the check. The employee deposits the check. Is that not the relationship between the lobbyists, the special interest groups, and the super powerful and the politicians? They call them campaign contributions. 
That's Orwellian for bribe. Let's be crystal clear. I couldn't take a cup of coffee on duty as an agent. And the politicians, when they run for office, you know if they're a serious candidate, by how many bribes they were able to acquire. Joe Smith is running for Congress. He's a serious candidate because his war chest has $3.4 million. What does he stand for? Who is he affiliated with? What's his background? Who cares? All we know is his bank account, that war chest, has $3.4 million in it. Talk about the best government money can buy if you wonder why we're in such deep trouble. This is something that the founding fathers never could have anticipated, although I do know that George Washington was dead set against political parties and, and warned about them, how political parties would enable unscrupulous individuals to usurp the power of the people. Is that not what we've been witnessing? So in any event, going back to this young lady, I asked her, could we admit an additional 10 million aliens every year? She said, absolutely. Look at how big this country is. I said, how about 20 million? Oh, no problem. Look at how big this country is. I said, you know, every person who comes here needs more than a bed to sleep on. This isn't about building apartment houses, because every person who comes here has an environmental footprint. They need food, they need water, they need electricity and transportation, and at some point probably health care. If they have children, the kids are going to need uh, education. They're going to need access to transportation, whether it's public transportation or the highways. They need food. And if you put too many people into an environment and they all try to buy all these commodities, this becomes inflationary, doesn't it? Yes, but this is America. I said, okay. Can we allow 50 million? Oh, undoubtedly. I said, how about 100 million? She said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, how about a half billion? And she said to me, Mr. Cutler, you've got to be kidding me. Where Where are you getting these numbers from? I said, all I'm telling you is if you take down the borders of America, which is what she was basically an advocate for, you will have an unlimited number of people from all over the world descending on America. And why not? If you're living in a country where you don't have electricity, and that's probably close to a billion people on this planet, if you don't have safe drinking water, God knows how many that is, if you can't feed your children and you have an opportunity to enter the United States, you tell me, what would you do? What happens when we start to admit tens of millions of aliens? And on top of it, this poses a threat to national security and public safety. You know, Kamala Harris, the, the hyena, stands there saying, oh, we're going to figure out what, what the root cause of immigration is. Well, the biggest root cause are the policies of the Biden administration, making it clear that they don't have any desire to secure the borders or enforce the immigration laws once you get here. So that's a very powerful message. Come here and you can get away with it. Isn't that a hell of a first impression that people are now getting of America? <laughs> they read the newspapers and criminals are getting out of jail. If you defend yourself against a criminal, you're probably going to go to jail. You come to America, you can violate the law, not just get away with it, but get rewarded for it. Is that a good first impression? Seriously? And so they basically, as I said about the the Obama administration when I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and what Obama did was horrific, but what Biden is doing is making Obama look like a hero. But back then at that hearing in 2013, I said that the policies of the Biden administration had in essence fired the starter's pistol for aspiring illegal aliens from all over the world. And for those folks, the finish line was the border of the United States, and not just the southern border, but any place you could enter. That includes the northern border, international airports, and America's 95,000 miles of coastline. This is a free-for-all. But it's not free for Americans, I can tell you. We're paying a hell of a price between the fentanyl, the crime, the economic damage. Um, It's off the charts. So as I mentioned, the half billion, and she finally said to me, look, I I don't know that we could allow in a half billion. I said, really? How about a billion? She said, all right, look, Mr. Cutler, you made your point. We, We can't allow a billion people to come to America. And we happened to be at a red light. I remember this like yesterday. And I turned and I looked at her. I said, my God, you just became a restrictionist. You, young lady, are an immigration restrictionist. 
You just told me that you would not allow in millions of people because we just can't do it. It's physically impossible. And she was really flustered. She said, I, I, I don't know how to answer you. I said, well, here's the problem. We can disagree about how many people America can admit, but we all get to a number that we can all agree upon. And when you get to that number, my question is, how do you plan to close the door when there are no doors? There is no interior enforcement. We've sent a message to the entire world that you can come to America and violate our borders. And this was just shortly after 9-11 because George W. Bush, globalist that he was or is, uh, created DHS in such a way that, according to John Hostetler, who was the Republican chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee back then, and I testified for John at a bunch of the hearings uh, by his subcommittee, he made a point back in 2005 that the way DHS was constructed by the Biden administration, by the, I'm sorry, the George W. Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration created immigration incoherence, <clears throat> making it impossible to secure the borders, enforce the laws, and therefore making it impossible to protect the American people, even though the 9-11 Commission found without a doubt that principally 9-11 was only possible because of immigration failures. But that was back then. I remember um, Lamar Smith, who had also been a chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee, went on to become chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. I did a bunch of hearings for, for Lamar also complaining that George W. Bush wouldn't hire all the agents they gave him money to hire, wouldn't acquire all the bed space at detention centers for illegal aliens, wouldn't hire all the Border Patrol agents that they appropriated the money for. And he said that what the Bush administration was doing was basically providing two candles instead of one candle in a blackout, or words to that effect. They thought it was a brilliant analogy. So we've had this problem from both parties. But you had the Republicans willing to stand up to the president from their own party and say, what in the world are you doing? In fact, I frequently got calls from the council over at the Republican uh, House Immigration Subcommittee, the Republican Judiciary Committee. And I would always start the conversation by saying, what did he do now? And who was the he? It was George W. Bush. And they would tell me whatever it was. And they'd say, would you like to come to Washington? We'd like to hold a hearing, but only if you could make it. I remember one time there was one particular topic, and I don't remember which one. If I couldn't make it, they said they wouldn't hold the hearing. They were that determined to have me testify. It was a strange position to be in, to be asked to provide a counterpoint to the President of the United States at an official congressional hearing. And it was the Republican telling me that you need to come to Washington to get the record straight. I was honored. I was also angry at the Bush administration. And if you thought I was angry about Bush, imagine where I am now with what we're witnessing with Biden. By the way, just to finish off the story, that young lady, by the time I drove her to the front door of her house in Manhattan, said to me, Mr. Cutler, I was wrong and you were right. I almost fell out of my car. She said, I guess when you look at it from your perspective, sooner or later we're going to reach a point where we can't deal with what's going on. I said, well, it's kind of like an atom bomb. You reach critical mass. We may argue about what constitutes critical mass, but everybody needs to come to the understanding that America can't simply eliminate its borders. And, and, and like they used to say in that TV show, the price is right, come on down. That would end America. So then you have to ask yourself, why in the world is the Biden administration doing what they're doing? Well, first of all, let's look no further than Alejandro Mayorkas. Alejandro Mayorkas had been the head of citizenship and immigration services under the Obama administration, and he demanded that the adjudicators approve just about every application for visas that landed on his desk or her desk, you know, the, the uh, adjudicators. And he was the boss. He threatened people. He said, you better get to yes. You better get to yes. And, and, and this was so outrageous, you better get to yes, that there was an investigation done because it became apparent to everybody that what he was doing was violating not only the law, but violating national security and the findings and recommendations of the 9-11 Commission. Think about that. Think about that. So this was the problem that we found ourselves in. 
In fact, I wrote an article back on December 7th, 2020, for Front Page Magazine. I do a ton of writing for them. I've got a new article coming out, as I mentioned. But in that article, I detailed some of the insanity that was foisted upon America by one Alejandro Mayorkas. So Mr. Mayorkas went on to go from being the head of Citizenship and Immigration Services, an agency under DHS that nobody talks about. I call them America's locksmith because that's the agency that adjudicates applications for visas, applications for political asylum, applications for green cards, applications for U.S. citizenship. Everyone says, well, if you want to get past the border, bring a taller ladder. No, get a green card. Get a U.S. passport. You walk through a port of entry, and you will be warmly embraced and welcomed home. Okay? Nobody wants to talk about that. Immigration fraud was identified by the 9-11 Commission as the key method of entry and embedding for the terrorists. And not just on 9-11. They looked at 10 years of terrorists, and something on the order of 90% of the terrorists all engaged in one form of immigration fraud or another. In fact, the very first time that I was called to appear at a congressional hearing was back on May 20th, 1997. And what was the topic? Immigration fraud and benefit fraud because of terror attacks carried out in 1993 in the United States. And you don't hear anything about that from either party or from the journalists. All they want you to do, look at the southern border. See the southern border? The southern border is a mess. Well, it is. And I don't want to minimize it. It's an outrageous mess, especially when you realize, as I've mentioned in so many of my prior programs, that Hezbollah is working throughout Latin America with human traffickers, drug smugglers, often one and the same, to flood America with narcotics, which is killing, God knows how many, hundreds of thousands, because it's not just the overdoses. It's the crime committed to support the drug habit. It's the people that get behind the wheel operating vehicles under the influence. It's perhaps people firing guns and killing people operating those firearms under the influence, but it's remarkable nobody talks about that. If somebody plows their car into a school bus and kills children and maims the teacher, the first thing you see in the first paragraph, the driver, Joe Smith, uh, was twice over the legal limit of alcohol, right? Immediately, it's right there, boom. I'd like to know what the toxicology reports are on mass shooters. I'm willing to bet that there's more than blood flowing through their veins. But we can't talk about that because our lunatic left politicians are eager to legalize and decriminalize drugs and encourage drug use. Uh, They talk about mental illness being behind mass shootings. Well, it probably is. You can't be in your right mind and engage in that kind of activity. I've carried a firearm since 1975. And every day when I went on duty as an agent, I said a little quiet prayer. And I'm not a particularly religious man, to be honest with you. But I said a little prayer. Please, dear God, do not make me need to use my gun today. Nobody wants to shoot a human being. I love target shooting. That's fun. I couldn't bring myself to shoot a dog that attacked me when I was in the backyard of a house as we were executing arrest warrants. Because I was intruding on the dog's territory. So I smacked him with my 357, which is what I carried in those days. And he ran off, and I was relieved because the last thing I wanted to do was to shoot that poor dog. He was doing his job. He was trying to protect his turf, as he should have. This isn't a, a, a minor issue. So people that intentionally go out there and do these things have to have problems. And I'd love to know how many of them have problems because of drug abuse, because that certainly would show, again, this nexus between an open border where drugs flow freely into the United States and where the proceeds of the drug trade enrich our good friends, you know, China, Iran, the cartels. What are we doing? What are we doing? This is sheer madness. But understand that we're a nation of 50 border states, and not just because we're sending aliens all over the United States. That makes every state a destination state. It's the fact that a place like New York has the greatest number of illegal aliens of any state in the country because we have an international airport, JFK. There's other international airports further north in in New York State, and you have quite a few aliens coming into the United States from all over the world who violate the terms of their entry into the United States. And, folks, they are illegal aliens. When I was a new agent, if in fact I found somebody working in a factory and they came in on a tourist visa, even if the tourist visa hadn't expired, let's say they came in three weeks ago and now they're working in a gas station, they're working in a supermarket, they're working in a factory, 
they were working and they were getting paid, we would arrest them. Imagine that. That would blow the minds of people today. We actually put handcuffs on them and put them in the back of our cars and brought them into the immigration office, and we processed them, and then we put them before an immigration judge, and most of them, by the end of the week, would find themselves back home. Because the immigration laws, among other things, are supposed to protect jobs and wages of Americans. Before the Second World War, the Labor Department ran immigration. And the president who was strongest on this notion of immigration law enforcement was none other than Franklin Delano Roosevelt trying to get America out of the Depression. He said, I don't want Americans to compete with foreign workers. We're going to crack down on anybody who hires aliens if they're here illegally or working illegally. And the Labor Department administered it until the Second World War when everyone came to the realization that immigration was a matter of national security when we had Nazi saboteurs showing up on our shores coming here by U-boat. So immigration was moved to the Justice Department just the way immigration was moved to the Department of Homeland Security after the attacks of 9-11. But what's always been left out, especially recently, is interior enforcement. You cannot secure the border without interior enforcement. And adding to the problem are sanctuary cities and sanctuary states that provide driver's licenses to illegal aliens who can't even prove who the hell they are. Obstructing immigration law enforcement as though it was optional Think about the madness. Think about the madness. All law enforcement is local just the way all politics is local. What does that mean? On 9-11, absolutely positively, America was attacked. But what did that really mean? Well, it meant that a building complex known as the World Trade Center was reduced to rubble on a street corner in Manhattan. It meant that the Pentagon got hit. It meant that an airliner went down in Pennsylvania. These were local places. The attacks were against America, but they were carried out at individual locations. So the states are supposed to work with the federal government to protect us, you would think. Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution states that the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. Is this not an invasion? Invasion is the unwelcome intrusion into another's domain, okay? Invasion is, and I'm reading this from a dictionary now, an instance of invading a country or region with an armed force. Well, these aren't necessarily armed, but it also states an incursion by a large number of people or things into a place or sphere of activity. Is that not what we're witnessing? The president took an oath of office to defend the Constitution. This is Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. Does this not violate his oath of office? President Trump was impeached for a phone call. You have an administration that is orchestrating the biggest invasion of our country since the founding of our nation, and it's just another day, and you hear crickets and yawns. Crickets and yawns. 19 hijackers carried out 9-11. 19. We have millions of people who have flowed into our country with a vetting process probably ineffective. And not a word. Not a word. Uh, I, I mean, this is so far off the charts. And, and, and when you look at it, you say, what in the world are we doing? The executive summary, and I included this in my article that will be published in the next couple of days at front page. The executive summary of the final 9-11 commission report included this excerpt. Permeable borders and immigration controls. There were opportunities for intelligence and law enforcement to exploit al-Qaeda's tra travel vulnerabilities. Considered collectively, the 9-11 hijackers included known al-Qaeda operatives who could have been watch-listed presented passports manipulated in a fraudulent manner, presented passports with suspicious indicators of extremism, made detectable false statements on visa applications, made false statements to border officials to gain entry into the United States, and violated immigration laws while in the United States. And Mayorkas told his people, approve the applications for visas. And he even made a statement when he became the Secretary of Homeland Security, that he would take no action to, Ameri to uh, naturalize American citizens, even if they lie on their applications, 
because now that they are Americans, they're entitled to 100% protection by the government of the United States. Well, if someone lies on an application for citizenship, they can be denaturalized, and it is a felony. This isn't like jaywalking. We keep hearing this nonsense. There's two sets of immigration law, criminal law and administrative law. Administratively, we seek the removal of the alien from the country. That satisfies the administrative side of it. But criminally, it's like any other criminal law. There are jail sentences and fines that can be imposed. An alien, for example, who commits visa fraud in conjunction with terrorism is looking at 25 years in jail. 25 years in jail. And you'll have politicians say, oh, this is just like jaywalking. Really? You know anybody who goes to jail for 25 years for jaywalking? An alien who commits visa fraud to, to become involved with narcotics is looking at 20 years in jail. Really? Reentry after deportation, a maximum of 20 years in jail for criminal aliens. I'm very proud of that statute because I worked with Al D'Amato when he was our senator back in the early 80s to create that law. And under the Trump administration, it was the most frequently prosecuted felony by the entire Department of Justice. And it's a very cost-effective law. What's your defense as an alien? You were deported. You did not get permission to come back. You're back. We have the executed warrant of deportation. There is your fingerprint. There is your finger. It matches. The database shows that you were never granted authorization to return. You go to the grand jury. You indict them, and you arrest them, and you prosecute them, and they go to jail. And, in fact, they did the first case in New York back in, gosh, I, I guess the, the um, late 1980s or, or the 1990s, and, and the guy went to jail for five years. He was a drug dealer. It was a real easy slam dunk. Five years for reentry. We took him out of a jail upstate New York. He was in jail for selling drugs. He had a green card, lost it because of his criminal activities. He was involved with firearms and extortion and crimes of violence and narcotics trafficking. We deported him. He came back. Bye-bye. Five years. I went to his sentencing. He cried like a little baby. But let's go back to the significance of our borders. There was a report written by the 9-11 Commission attorneys and federal agents who were assigned to work with the commission. This was an official report published by the government printing office. And here is how the preface of that report begins. This is the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Uh, where I just lost my spot. Forgive me. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe for reasons we discussed in the following pages that it must be made one. So here they're talking about entering even with visas. And all we're told is look at the southern border. Every year we admit tens of millions of aliens through ports of entry. Is anybody even considering who's coming in through our over 110 international airports scattered across the country? No, because we're too busy just looking at the southern border. Again, the southern border is catastrophic. Hundreds of thousands of getaways. We have a northern border. There was just a press release issued by the Justice Department a couple of weeks ago about how Canada is working with the United States to go after cross-border crime on the northern border, including fentanyl trafficking, firearm trafficking, human trafficking, and so forth. Northern border. When was the last time you saw news coverage on any network depicting what's happening on the northern border? When was the last time you heard a report anywhere about international airports other than those times? Uh, well, And I give them credit because Newsmax has been having me on uh, fairly routinely, and I do get to speak about all this. They don't do pre-interviews and say to me, oh, we're going in a different direction today, Mr. Cutler. That's happened to me with many networks. You'd be surprised. Not Newsmax. They just say, we'd like you to come on. They sometimes say, what would you like to focus on? That's cool. But I've never been told, oh, we're going in a different direction. God bless them. They do a good job. But why aren't we concerned with what's coming across the northern border or on boats or on airplanes? Why the tunnel vision? And then they talk about, well, we have to have comprehensive reform. And, and you've got Mayorkas almost holding us hostage. Well, Congress needs to act. We need comprehensive immigration reform. Sure thing. So we're going to give 
tens of millions of aliens who snuck into the country, green cards that have passed the citizenship without interviewing them, without the capacity to do field investigations, without the ability to vet them. And you should know that when our guys raided the bin Laden compound and took him out, they found in his library, among other things, a copy of the 9-11 Commission report and an application for U.S. citizenship. We've had a bunch of terrorists, including the Tsarnaev brothers, uh, who got asylum in the United States, applied for green cards, got U.S. passports, and then attacked America. And all we're hearing from both sides of the earth, well, we really need to sit down and come up with comprehensive immigration reform. Really? That's the solution? So we're going to give millions of people, tens of millions of people, green card citizenship and the immediate right to petition to have every one of their minor children admitted into the United States. Takes my breath away. So let's say we legalize 25 or 30 million. Imagine if each one then files to have four kids come to America immediately because they claim they're their children. And I promise you that the Biden administration and Mr. Get to Yes Mayorkas are not going to be doing DNA testing. Trump tried to do it, and the court said it was taking too long. So kids were turned over to people that may not even have been their guardians or their family members. And to his credit, Trump was trying to fight that. In fact, in Europe, they do that, DNA testing, to make certain that people are actually related and they claim asylum. But the courts in the United States are all in, some of the courts, on let them all in, let them all in. I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Times back around 2006. Jeff Sessions, who was the senator from Alabama at the time, liked it so much he quoted me from the floor of the Senate during the floor debate on three separate occasions because I suggested that we rename comprehensive immigration reform and give it a new name that's more honest and descriptive. I suggested calling it the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. I've subsequently added another nickname to that kind of legislative detritus. I would refer to it as the Overwhelm America Act. And isn't that what we're seeing now? Isn't that exactly what we're seeing now? And as the aliens are flowing into the country, understand what this means. These aliens are being given hearing dates years from now. In New York, the hearing dates are 10 years away. So I, I want you to understand what that means. I'm going to read to you. This is page 98 from that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. Really an important paragraph. I want you to listen carefully. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen Achieving temporary worker status, DACA is a great example of that. By the way, DACA was put together, guess, guess who? Alejandro Mayorkas was the architect of DACA, okay? So as already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, or applying for asylum after entering. All these aliens that are coming in are applying for asylum. Very few of them will qualify. And the media doesn't explain it to the people. They come from poverty. They come from crime. They come from... That's not what asylum is. Political asylum is a very specific alien must have credible fear that can be investigated and ascertained. Credible fear that because of their race, their religion, their ethnicity, their tribal affiliation, their sexual orientation, or their political beliefs, they face persecution or worse in their home country, period. By the way, the whole idea behind Remain in Mexico, if you're running for your life, you don't get to go to a travel agency and say, I'd like to go to Tahiti, okay? Once you get out of the country where your life is ostensibly jeopardized, you're safe. And if other countries will have you, then that's peachy keen because you're no longer in the country where you face persecution and harm. It's not inhumane. The ACLU is screaming, oh, my God, look what they're doing. It's not fair. No, asylum isn't about booking a trip through a travel agency and saying, oh, I'd like to go to the United States. No, if another country will have you and that country is not, does not persecute you, we've solved your problem or that other country has solved your problem. This isn't you have to come to America, okay? You have to get to a place of safety. That's fair. I agree with it, 
if you look at what happened during the Holocaust, and if you look at how America turned away a boat called the St. Louis with lots of Jewish refugees, men, women, and children, sent back to Germany during the Holocaust. Brilliant. So am I sympathetic about this notion of political asylum? Yes, but only if it's legitimate and not a way of gaming the immigration system, turning our kindness and compassion into a weapon being used against us, which is exactly what the Biden administration is doing, exactly what Alejandro Mayorkas is doing. In fact, I made a point in a prior article that employing Mayorkas as the head of Homeland Security is the equivalent, think of this, of putting an arsonist in charge of the fire department. And so when they purposely ended Title 42 and put nothing in its place to help slow down the numbers, basically you had the arsonist dumping an accelerant onto a blazing flame, and the purpose of the fire was to burn down the immigration system, and with it, ultimately, America. You can't defend a country if you have no way of keeping people from all over the world out of the United States and whatever numbers they show up and with backgrounds that can't be determined. Think about all that. So let me go back and reread this because I know I interrupted myself. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, or applying for asylum after entering. In many cases, the act of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Terrorists. Terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute an attack. So think about that. In many cases, the act of filing for immigration benefits sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Because they have overloaded and overwhelmed the system, that could be a period of 10 years or more. Imagine playing hide-and-seek. No one's going to seek, and you can hide for the next 10 years while you go about preparations to blow up lots of Americans. Why is nobody in the media talking about this? Don't tell me it's national security. It needs to be spelled out so that the American people understand precisely the way that this administration has undermined national security and public safety. And I want to know what they're going to say if, God forbid, there's a terrorist attack. The first bombing at the Trade Center was designed to bring one tower down sideways into the other. It's believed that a couple of hundred thousand people might have died. The seawall keeping out the Hudson River would have ruptured. Lower Manhattan would have been flooded. It probably would still be uninhabitable 30 years later. 30 years later, hundreds of thousands. What happens if, God forbid, that happens tomorrow? What happens if, God forbid, at some point a bunch of shopping centers are attacked or whatever, and there's mass carnage, and it's going to be shown that the people who carried out the attack entered the United States because of Biden's dereliction of duty? And that's the, the least of it, as far as I'm concerned. At what point do we have accountability? A former Marine wound up killing a man that was threatening passengers on a train. He's been indicted for manslaughter. Um, I think he was a hero. The guy, as it turned out, had over 40 prior arrests. I think he had psychiatric problems. You know, he posed a threat. And being a former Marine, 24 years old, he stepped up and said, I'm going to help. And in the process, the guy died. And instead of simply saying, well, you know, stuff happens, Oh, no, 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 we're going to prosecute you. And he had injured an elderly person. This guy had a history of walking up to elderly women and bashing them in the face. That could be a lethal injury. Certainly could be life-altering. So without knowing the guy's background, just based on his imminent threat of screaming and, and, and ranting and raving, he didn't give a damn if he had to go to jail or if he was going to die. Um, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? You don't have much time to react, and there's no do-over button. Oh, gee, I wish I knew he was planning to bash that woman in the face. No, he saw the threat. Being a good young American kid, he intervened, and now he's facing manslaughter charges. If a doctor screws up in the operating room, 
he or she can lose their license. They could be sued. They could even be criminally prosecuted. Think of the airline pilot, Sully. He's a hero, right? Landed in the Hudson River. But he had to go through an inquest held by the FAA as to why he landed in the river and didn't make it back to LaGuardia or head over to Peterborough in New Jersey. And they ran simulation after simulation. They spent a ton of money. And then they finally said, yeah, you're right, there was no time. Because if they had found that there was time for him to go back to, to, to LaGuardia or head to Teterboro, God only knows. He might have been fined. He might have lost his license. Who knows? He could have been prosecuted. You, you're accountable. A cop gets into a shooting, you're accountable. There's always accountability. Except for politicians. The policies of this crop of politicians is killing tens of thousands of Americans on a, daily, on a, on a yearly basis. And what politician has faced any consequences because of open borders, because of allowing criminals out who are in custody who then go out and commit additional crimes, even when there are immigration detainers? Under the law, uh, Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1324, harboring, shielding, aiding, abetting, inducing, transporting illegal aliens is a felony. Sanctuary cities engage in all those activities, and what happens? Upkiss. And what we've seen from Mayorkas is this tendency to take what are supposed to be humanitarian programs like DACA, which is supposed to be used sparingly if a family comes to America, for example, and someone has a heart attack, they're hit by a car, they're in the hospital, we're not going to force them to leave the United States. We're not going to force the family to go home and, and, and leave their, the father, the mother, or their eight-year-old child in a hospital bed. They're allowed to stay here because we are a compassionate country, and I approve of it wholeheartedly. As an agent, I used to keep tabs on the progress, the medical progress of such aliens by um, staying in touch with the physicians to make certain that if, in fact, the person could not be moved, if the person had to remain in the hospital that they did, and the family might have even been given permission to work here. Who can afford to, to stay somewhere without working for months? We do it all the time. But to take that program designed to help a family in crisis and say, we're going to allow millions of aliens to stay in America if they claim they came before they were 15, but they could be in their mid-30s. It's a perversion of the law and the intent of the law. The parole process is the same thing, and now a judge has shot it down. I remember when I was interviewed for the job, I was asked, if you're an inspector at a port of entry and a woman comes in with her doctor and she needs to go to a hospital, but she was previously deported, what would you do? I said, well, there's got to be a way that she could go to the hospital to get life-saving treatment, perhaps have an agent accompany her so that she doesn't escape, and when she's well enough to travel, we send her home. And that's what they were looking for, that I was compassionate. And I remember that the people that interviewed me said, well, Mr. Cutler, you're not aware of what this is, but we can parole somebody that way. So legally, they're not admitted, but they're physically here so they can be treated. And when the treatment is over, they're expected to go back to their home country. That's fine. But now Biden said, we're going to parole in any alien who could walk, crawl, or fly. And we have no idea who they are, but come one, come all. And again, it's not only the southern border. And a judge just knocked it down and said, no, this is a violation of law. Could you imagine that? A judge had the chutzpah tell the Biden administration that what they are trying to do is illegal? This is not a legislative process. You would never know it, but Congress is supposed to be a co-equal part of our government. You'd never know it, because through executive orders, we have had presidents act as judge, jury, and executioner. My dad said to me that I would teach people how they should treat me by demonstrating what we're willing to accept. We've got to make our voices heard to our politicians that we're not the idiots they've been playing us for, and that we expect far better from a government that supposedly is of the people, by the people, for the people. Please have conversations with your neighbors. Have those very important conversations. These aren't left or right issues. And by the way, if the Republicans could have called out George W. Bush for what he did, I certainly would love to see the Democrats do the same with Mr. Biden, but I'm not holding my breath. Remember, folks, democracy is not a spectator sport. Thank you for listening. I hope it's helpful. Please share the link to my podcast and my articles at Front Page Magazine and my website, michaelcutler.net, with as many people as you can. See you next week. <laughs>